Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to today's MitoAction monthly expert series. My name is Kyra Mann, CEO of MitoAction. We're honored you're here today for our presentation to discuss a really important topic for the Mito community, pain. Today's presentation will be recorded and available on the MitoAction website in the coming days, as well as on our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. If you're joining us via phone, I would encourage you to follow along with the presentation slides that can be found on our website at www.mitoaction.org slash resources slash pain. If you're joining us via computer, you should see the presentation on your screen. We encourage you to ask questions throughout the presentation using the Q&A feature on the bottom menu bar. If you're calling in via phone, feel free to submit your questions to us by email at info at mitoaction.org. We will do our best to get through as many questions as possible at the end of today's presentation. Joining me today to share about the new draft CDC opioid guideline and what they mean to our community are three incredible Mito parents. Charles Mitter, PhD, Emeritus Professor in the College of Computers, Mathematical and Natural Sciences at the University of Maryland, also serving as former chair of the Department of Entomology. Caroline Sanders is a senior policy director of the California Pan-Ethnic Health Network and George Lippman, social justice advocate and chair of the City of Berkeley Peace and Justice Commission. Most important is their role as parents to two amazing Mito warriors who we lost in 2019 and 21. Charles's daughter, Caroline, was a veterinary student at the University of California, Davis School of Veterinary Medicine, and George and Caroline's daughter, Julia, was an alum of the Berkeley Public Schools and a fierce advocate for rare diseases. We'll learn more about both girls who were best friends later in the presentation. Despite this incredible loss, today's speakers have made a commitment to the Mito community to ensure that others don't face the tremendous obstacles that their daughters faced. They are working along Mito Action to ensure that we are at the forefront of current advocacy and legislative issues that impact our community. Please join me in welcoming Charles, Caroline, and George. Thank you, Kyra. Should I begin? Yes, go ahead. All right, thank you. Hi, everybody. So glad to meet you all. Uh, we are two families who met through our young adult daughters who suffered for years from mitochondrial disease. Our kids lived parallel experiences, leaving us just in the last couple of years. You'll see uh, uh, Carrie and my daughter, uh, Julia, on the left, and Caroline. Uh, Charlie's daughter on the right with the cat. Julia and Caroline are our heroines. They both fought bravely for six years through a disease that had no cure and no effective treatment. This is a tragedy that we must bear and we four have bonded closely to support each other 
in this loss where there is no one to blame. However, we feel strongly that much of the medical system failed them in its inability or refusal to provide as much comfort as possible during their progressive decline. Both young women were brilliant, both looking forward to medical careers and heavily engaged in fighting for their own health. But they faced external obstacles that they could not overcome. Both suffered from extreme physical pain that alternative therapies could not treat sufficiently. Their extreme GI failure meant that they could not eat or drink at all, even with tube feeding, without unbearable pain and nausea. Both found after experimentation that only the opioid Dilaudid could give enough pain relief to allow them to function at all. In 2018, about three years into her illness, Julia finally found a palliative pain practice that allowed her to take Dilaudid intravenously. This practice at a prominent university hospital recognized that she had a legitimate need for narcotic treatment to ensure her a reasonable quality of life. For over a year, Julia was able to focus on fighting her disease, mentoring, and speaking to other young people about their own health problems. But in 2019, influenced by the new restrictive CDC guideline, her palliative care doctors, in line with other providers nationally, began a forced tapering process with the end goal of eliminating all of her pain medication. In that same year and in the same hospital, Caroline's doctors also began, began a forced taper, claiming falsely that Dilaudid was not helping her. This taper was over the family's strenuous objections. Thereafter, Caroline's pain level increased, she declined rapidly, and she died of sepsis in September 2019. She received her posthumous doctorate of veterinary medicine in 2020. Also in 2020, faced with repeated episodes of septic blood infection, continued deterioration, and lack of any other options for pain relief, Julia entered home hospice. The hospice was a better setting for her as it is based in comfort care and on the recognition that the patient is in a terminal phase. But even in hospice, there was some pressure to reduce her pain relief. And there was resistance, especially during the pandemic, to allow Julia to treat her sepsis. Even though uh, treatment of infection is supposed to be considered comfort care and therefore allowed in the hospice process. We believe that the denial of compassionate care, especially pain relief, was a denial of the hard-won pr medical principle of patient-centered care. Julia and Caroline had a human right to be treated according to their individual needs, not based primarily on statistics, on the limited understanding that doctors have of rare diseases, nor on guidelines from Washington, DC, nor on the rules of for-profit insurance companies or hospitals, and definitely, definitely not on the special interests of pharmaceutical companies that profit from the CDC guidelines. The human impact of this denial is severe. If the diagnosis of an incurable disease was a death sentence, the denial of care made it that much harder for our mito sisters to muster the will to fight. In addition, 
for much of the progress of their disease of their illnesses. They had to contend with practitioners and others who were so ignorant of mitochondrial disease that they denied there was any illness at all. Instead, we heard unfounded speculation about psychological disorders of various sorts. Caroline died in September of 2019 and Julia exactly a year ago in April, 2021. These very savvy young women passed along a request to their parents. They asked that we work with MitoAction, with the National Pain Advocacy Center and other nonprofits to ensure better treatment for those who follow in their footsteps, to be afforded dignity, to have their voices respected, and to have a course of treatment that is as comfortable as possible. It has been a comfort to us as their survivors to work with others to fulfill this charge from our daughters. We are gratified that the voice of common sense is finally being heard in the medical profession, among government regulators, and on Capitol Hill. Charlie Mitter will now tell you more about the new CDC draft guideline for the prescription of opioids. But I want to end by saying this. I, I know each of you has your own family story that is unique. And our families are so glad that you are bringing your experience to this round table. I hope that together we can turn our pain into collective strength and improve the treatment of everyone's kids. Thank you. Great. I wanna thank, I'm gonna start by just thanking Kyra for her excellent leadership of Mito Action and for giving us the chance to pitch in here um, in memory of our daughters and in the keen awareness of how much Mito patients suffer. So what I'm going to do is, first of all, give you a bit of background about the topic of, uh, of uh, chronic pain so that we can better understand the importance of our getting involved in this issue. And then I'll talk in more detail about the CDC guideline um, on prescribing opioids for chronic pain and the problems it has created for us. And then finally, we'll talk about uh, the promising revision of that guideline and why it is so important that we advocate for its adoption. Uh, so next slide, please. Um, how big of a deal is chronic pain? Uh, it turns out to be pretty big a deal. Uh, chronic pain is the leading cause of disability in the US uh, and elsewhere. And about 20% of US adults have reported chronic pain and 7% have reported uh, chronic pain so bad that it strongly limits their life or, or work activities. And um, then if you look more specifically at mito patients, uh, it turns out historically, um, pain has not been considered one of the core symptoms of, uh, of uh, mitochondrial disease. And it's only recently being studied by scientists. And, so far, it turns out, not surprisingly, that basically all adult mito patients experience pain, um, and two-thirds of them experience chronic pain, and the average, S the average impact of that pain has been estimated to be equivalent to that of chronic back pain, which for many people rules their lives. Um, it's likely that more than 35,000 adult mito patients in the U.S. and 10,000 
Mito kids are living uh, right now with chronic pain. And um, there's been a lot of study now about the effects of uh, undertreated chronic pain. And it's known that uh, that pain can basically turn, basically harm everything important about your life, um, uh, your mental health, your cognitive function, your ability to work, uh, your suicide risk, your life expectancy, and so on. And um, it's common to think mostly about advanced cancer patients when we talk about pain. Uh, uh, but in fact, research now shows that people with chronic, with, with chronic non-cancer pain, like many mito patients, have just as much uh, harm to their uh, uh, well-being as do advanced cancer patients. So I guess the, the summary there would be uh, chronic pain is indeed a big issue for mito patients. Um, next slide, please. All right. Um, now, how is chronic pain treated? Uh, it turns out uh, recent studies show that the, the vast majority of chronic pain patients do not choose opioids or they are intolerant of them. Uh, instead, they can use other drugs or many other options such as physical therapy, uh, interventional therapy, uh, behavioral therapy, or holistic therapy like uh, acupuncture and so on. But for a minority of patients, only op opioids provide enough pain relief to allow acceptable function and quality of life. And basically only those opioids for those people, which included our daughters, uh, only opioids make life worth living. Um, how many people is that? Uh, uh, in the US, it, it's estimated that five to eight million adults use opioids for chronic pain. And these undoubtedly include thousands of mito patients and many more thousands of other rare disease patients. And so opioid policy uh, has a direct effect on the mito community and that's why we're talking to you today. Um, could I have a next slide? Um, okay, so this, tool, this uh, guideline that we've been talking about uh, is the result of a publication, a report published by the CDC in 2016 which was called the CDC Guideline for Prescribing Opioids for Chronic Pain. And this report was prompted by uh, what seemed then and now still a, basically an epidemic of overdose deaths, overdose deaths from, at that time, prescription opioids, it was thought. Um, so for example, that number of, uh, of deaths went from 3,000 in 1999 to 15,000 uh, 16 years later. So there really was and is a terrible emergency there. Um, and the guideline was aimed at primary care doctors uh, who prescribed opioids to adults with non-cancer chronic pain. And the emphasis was on reducing prescription of opioids in order to reduce overdose deaths. Um, the guidelines stressed the, the risks of long-term opioids and it expressed skepticism that those, uh, that those long-term opioids have even any good effect at all. Um, the guideline uh, proposed a strict one-sized um, uh, one size fits all uh, uh, quantitative limits on how much opioid a patient could take in a day and how many days a prescription for opioids could last. Um, and it also proposed a pretty st uh, strict and burdensome uh, uh, means of monitoring people who did get opiates. 
Um, so, if I could see if I have the next slide, please. Um, and so, um, so what happened? Uh, the CDC is uh, actually not. Regulation of drugs is actually the FDA's business, not the CDC. But the CDC felt strongly about this, and they're they're they have a lot of clout, and a lot of people listen to them, and so a lot of their recommendations were put uh, quickly into effect. And let's ask what happened when that when they did that, and the answer is that opioid prescribing went down uh, by almost half, uh, and this was part of a existing trend toward restriction of opiates general. Um, but it was also specifically accelerated by the guideline. Um, the US opioid prescription rate peaked in 2012 and then has declined every year since. And so now it is at record lows. So opioid prescriptions is way down. One might expect overdose deaths would also be way down, but that's the opposite of what has happened. Um, in fact, um, the total number of opioid deaths from prescription opioids has leveled off and maybe even decreased a bit. Um, but the total number of deaths from opioids has been going up drastically. And just, for example, it, it doubled between 2015 and 2021. And in that latter year, the number of opioid deaths in the US was over 100,000. Um, but the great majority of those opioid deaths now involve fentanyl and other street drugs, including uh, um, mostly illegal, um, and they do not include uh, drugs prescribed to the patient that died. Um, I don't know how many overdose deaths the guidelines might have prevented, but you can, you can confidently say that that number is overwhelmed by the larger social dynamic of people turning to fentanyl and other illegal drugs. So uh, next slide, please. <clears throat> um, one, one thing one can say definitely about what the guideline did, however, is that it made life much harder for people with chronic pain. And what happened was, I think, uh, uh, it was certainly unintended uh, because the recommendations of the guideline were intended to be voluntary and to be uh, separately judged by individual doctors. But instead, what happened was that uh, the authorities uh, who make the big money uh, at, in prescribing drugs uh, saw this as a way to uh, get uh, control of, um, of opioid prescribing. And so pharmacies and payers and providers and big insurance companies and, and in many cases, state laws uh, used the recommendations to form very strict policies uh, which have damaged countless lives. Um, and I would say that the, the total cost to society is just, just still being tabulated. Uh, for many patients, it just became much harder um, and more expensive to get the drugs that they were being prescribed. But for many other patients um, um, had their opioids cut off slowly or gradually. So many people who had been dependent on opioids for chronic pain relief uh, didn't have it anymore. And uh, this, this story has been told over and over again in the press. Uh, those patients became desperate um, 
and some, some of them uh, committed suicide and others of them, uh, many others of them, uh, turned to the street to get pain relief drugs like fentanyl and other things which are far more dangerous. And I suspect that, um, that many overdose deaths resulted from people being cut off from their opioids. Um, and also in this, there was sort of a climate of hysteria about opioids, partly justified by the fact that opioid deaths were a major societal problem, but also just um, by the, the general bias against opioids, which any opioid patient can tell you about. They go in the hospital and anything that's wrong with you must be due to your opioids. In that climate, doctors became afraid of professional or legal uh, damage if they prescribed opioids, if they made the slightest mistake. And so a lot of them just stopped prescribing. And many patients were abandoned. Um, and it goes farther than that is that uh, it's hard now for patients who need opioids to get healthcare at all because doctors are very reluctant to take on a patient that needs them. Uh, a recent study showed that uh, of primary care providers show that 80% of them were either reluctant or completely unwilling to take on a new patient if that person is taking opioids. Um, next slide, please. Um, so um, as, the, uh, as these unintended harms became obvious, there was sort of more and more, um, there was more and more criticism and upset. Uh, people were writing letters to their congressmen. Um, many agencies and um, including government agencies and many healthcare include uh, authorities like the American Medical Association, uh, started complaining uh, and felt that the, uh, said that the guidelines should either be revised or even eliminated entirely. Um, so there was a very strong pressure building uh, for the CDC to do something. And um, in, 19, in 2019, the CDC itself uh, published a, 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 a clarification which reiterated that the uh, the intent of the guideline was for voluntary uh, uh, prescriptions, and they started a multi-year process to revise the guideline. And that was a very complex and controversial process that I won't recount here, but I can say happily that we now have a draft revision released for public comment, uh, which goes a, a great way toward addressing the criticisms um, and it is very good news indeed. Many of us have been very happy to see that, although I'll say in a minute, it's not perfect. But let's look at some of the things that it did. Uh, so um, first of all, the guideline, the original guideline was basically, uh, was, not, was not expressed much less concerned about pain than about reducing uh, uh, opioid deaths. And so the new one points out that pain itself is a major public uh, health issue. And the new guideline explicitly recognizes and acknowledges the harms that were done by uh, misapplication of the 2016 version. And so uh, from most of the guideline, there has now uh, the strict supply and dose limits uh, have been removed. So those are supposed to be fixed by the, by the uh, provider and the patient. Um, there is strong caution against doing the kind of tapering which has caused so much trouble and pain for so many people. 
And the emphasis has moved uh, from one size fits all to individualized uh, patient-centered pain treatment. Um, there were issues that were entirely overlooked in the first one, including great disparities in access to pain control among different parts of the population. The new guideline calls for addressing those. And it specifically warns again and again against using those guidelines as uh, strict rules to be applied to patients or entire systems. Okay, could I have the next uh, slide, please? Um, and so happily, I would say that this proposed revision has the potential to greatly improve the, uh, the lives of millions of, of uh, chronic patients, but we aren't there yet. And a number of things have to happen first. And I think this will be a multi-year effort that I hope Mito Action will remain involved in. First of all, the draft revision itself must be formally adopted by the CDC. And this is not a foregone conclusion because there are strong voices inside the CDC and elsewhere who thought the original guidelines were doing the right thing and they would like to keep doing it. Um, so the CDC has given us a chance to comment on the revision and one of the essential uh, actions required to make this thing go through will be overwhelming support in the public comments. Uh, and Carrie's uh, gonna talk about how we can contribute to that effort. And I think you could simply say it, uh, if we fail to adopt these new guidelines and leave the other ones in place, that would be disastrous. Um, secondly, a revised vision does not, uh, just adopting it doesn't mean that it's gonna be put into practice. Um, you know, your local doctor who's refusing to prescribe opioids is not gonna instantly change their mind. Uh, there's gonna be a huge effort required to undo the harms that were generated by the 2016 version. Um, and the revision itself retains a lot of weird features from the previous version, uh, which are still uh, capable of causing harm, such as the new version is still very much biased against opioids in, for example, it just, it, although it talks about multimodal uh, treatment, uh, basically the first decision to be made is opioids, uh, yes or no, and they would urge you to, to not consider opiates except in the, in the, in the, as a last resort. Um, so there's a huge amount of uh, stuff to be done still. You can find more, uh, there's more detail on our website and the links there. And if you wanna read about uh, all those issues. Um, for what, makes me, what makes me happy in part is that these issues are now all on the table for public discussion. And so given that this, issue has major impact on our community. I think that Mito Action has an opportunity, a long-term sustained opportunity uh, to help our patients by committing to continuing advocacy for more rational uh, pain treatment. Um, so we need the help of all of you and Carrie is now going to tell us basically what can you can do about all this uh, to help MITO patients? Thanks, Charlie. And um, thank you uh, to Kyra and for folks joining us today. Um, I'm gonna stay off video just because uh, I don't want my computer to uh, stall here. Um, and I'm showing the slides from my computer. Um, but I just, uh, again, really um, happy to be you know, speaking with you all 
uh, and uh, really appreciate Mido Action for having us today on the webinar. Um, George shared our story about Julia and, uh, and Caroline. Charlie provided important background and now is the time to take action. Uh, written comments are an important way to weigh in on important issues such as the CDC opioid guidelines. Um, I don't know if it's possible for folks to you know, comment in the chat, but um, would love to get a sense from folks in the room you know, how many, how many people have uh, shared comments uh, publicly uh, or, or, you know, written comments uh, for, you know, with regards to federal uh, guidelines or regulations. Um, so, you know, feel free to, um, to, to share. Um, my goal today and, in the, and just in the next few slides, um, we're, we're almost at the end here, is really to demystify this process. Um, I, uh, you know, I, I get to do this in my, uh, you know, actual job, um, writing, uh, submitting comments into these federal uh, portals, and um, it can feel daunting, but, you know, it's, it's, it's not as bad as, as it looks. Um, and in fact, um, it's really important. It's a really important process that we all, you know, take it, you should take advantage of um, to, to weigh in and to be counted. Um, first important and most important thing to know is the deadline, which is Monday, April 11th at 1259 uh, Eastern time. So um, you have, you know, we have about a little over a week um, for folks to, to make your comments, um, but I encourage you all to do so as soon as you can. Um, numbers count. And the reason I say that is, you know, when, uh, whenever there's an important issue, decision makers will look at, uh, you know, how many comments did we get on this? Was this, uh, you know, are we talking about a thousand? Are we talking about 10,000? Are we talking about, you know, a hundred thousand? Um, currently right now on this issue, there are 3.35 uh, thousand comments. Um, and you can see those all online, but it's very impressive. Um, but we need more, as Charlie said, um, even if you agree with all the changes um, that have been made that we think personally, I think, you know, are an improvement, um, we know that um, these are not a done deal, that there are still forces that are, uh, you know, uh, trying to convince uh, leaders and policymakers that, you know, we, we shouldn't, we should go back to the way things were. So your, your comment, your individual comment counts. Each comment is considered a unique entry um, and the CDC must read and consider every comment before they finalize their guidance. So another you know, really important um, uh, you know, thing to remember is um, the number of comments you know, really do matter. Um, I also want to just stress for this group and on this issue that comments submitted are submitted in the public record. Um, and I say that because I think we all, you know, maybe want to share our stories. And I also want folks to know that, you know, if, if there's personal information, such as, you know, the name of your doctor or your hospital or things that, you know, you um, maybe don't want uh, to, uh, to, for folks to, to be able to link back, um, 
you know, you can always, uh, you know, leave out certain pieces of information while still sharing your story. Um, and if you want, you know, you can look online to see um, how others have done that if you want some examples. Um, I encourage folks to, to be, you know, uh, upfront and honest and, you know, also want to protect uh, patient, uh, you know, privacy and, uh, and, and your family information. Um, there's a couple ways to comment. Uh, first, you can comment online. Um, you can also um, comment uh, on by mail. Um, I highly recommend uh, if, if you're you know, comfortable with the internet and, and, and your uh, computers to, to try to do it online. Um, there's two places you can go. The first is to www.regulations.gov. And the second is to the Federal Register, which is where um, all uh, public comments are noticed. Um, actually, if you link, if you, if you click on either one of these two links that I have in the slide presentation, it should take you directly to uh, the comment uh, portal. Um, however, if you are um, you know, trying to figure it out, looking around, it's the docket ID number CDC dash 2022-0024. Um, when you get there, you click on the comment now and you can type your comments uh, into the comment box or upload a document. Um, and um, uh, yeah, and so um, I will just, um, oops, <laughs> uh, keep going here. Um, if I can, I'd like to show you an example, but I don't want to break the, the slide the slide presentation here. Um, so some things to think about as you're writing your comments. Um, you want to introduce yourself, you know, your name and generally where you live. Um, this is important because representation matters. Um, your policymakers uh, want to know, um, you know, where you're from. Um, and then we also, you know, you'll also want to talk about what you like about the proposed guideline. Um, what are the change, you know, what, what are some of the changes that you feel are important, as well as what you don't like? Um, what would you have preferred to see instead? Tell your story, including any harms that have occurred as a result of the 2016 guideline and whether you feel this update will address them. And um, I included an, an example here. So we know we know now that the guidelines, um, the proposed guidelines would exempt palliative care doctors. Um, so is that, you know, perhaps that solves your, your pain problem and maybe it doesn't, um, but, you know, make sure that you clarify how that particular change could help you or not, or what, where you think there might need to be further action. Um, be brief, but specific. So if you feel comfortable, mention your diagnosis, how your medication helped you engage in life activity, what activities um, you know, were prevented when you lost access if you did. Um, so for example, this person you know, writes, I have Mito with medication, I was able to garden, cook for my family and even travel. After my medication was denied, I'm bedridden and at home. Um, also uh, talk about the process of commenting, how easy or hard was it? Um, this is really important because, uh, you know, the process itself is a, a, 
it's it's a right. It should be a right um, that we all have to be able to provide input into decisions that uh, agencies, government agencies, and policymakers are making. Um, if the if the guy if the opportunity to comment uh, was not properly notified, if the um, if there were you know difficulty in in um, submitting comments. Um, you actually have the right to both, uh, you know, let folks know, and also um, to request uh, a hearing. <laughs> um, and those are things that you know uh, folks can always um, can do, um, but important to you know provide that feedback um, about the process itself. Um, Charlie mentioned that. Uh, the MitoAction website has some incredible uh, talking points and, um, ish and information about how to take action. Uh, I also want to just uh, uh, mention that the National Pain Advocacy uh, Center, or, or NPAC, uh, is also leading the charge on, these, on this issue and uh, has some wonderful um, uh, resources on their webpage. And in fact, you know, many of the ones that I'm sharing with you today uh, came from their page as well. Um, the other way to take action is to call your senator or representative. Um, this is really important. Uh, in addition to sharing your comments, uh, really important to share with your senators and representatives um, what the damage was with the 2016 guideline. Uh, and why this is such an improvement. Uh, legislators and policymakers, you know, have, uh, have need to know that this uh, this you know problematic guideline um, uh, has been you know needs to be revised. Um, and in fact, you know, there's a, there there has been I think a lot of pressure um, on legislators to take action. Uh, you know. In, uh, in the other, on the other um, uh, extreme, uh, to cut down uh, opioid deaths and pre and prescribing, et cetera, et cetera. But as Charlie mentioned, you know, for everything that the guidelines have done in terms of reducing opioid prescribing, uh, opioid deaths have actually gone up. And so, you know, this is information uh, that policymakers really need to know, and they need to hear it from you. Um, personal stories, the fact that you live in their district, you know, this is all really, really important um, for them to know that this is a problem that is, is in their backyard. Um, I include the number of the Capitol switchboard where you can call to, uh, to talk with your uh, Congress me uh, member, uh, as well as two websites, um, www.house.gov and senate.gov where you can go to, if you, know, if you don't know who your senator or your representative is, you can look up that their name. Um, and with that, I'm going to turn it back to Kyra for uh, questions and answers. Thanks, Carolyn, George, and Charlie. I appreciate all of the time that you guys have spent preparing this. And I know that this is an issue very near and dear to your heart. So I'm honored to be able to work with you on this and the other issues that we have on our, on our short list to, to tackle for this community. Um, so a couple of questions have come in. Can you 
talk a little bit about what is the difference between palliative care and hospice? Any one of our speakers? Um, it looks like Charlie wants to, so you just have okay. to come off mute. <laughs> Jerry, I think that you are extremely familiar with that distinction. Why don't you tell us about it? I'll start. I'll start us off. So palliative care um, is really, you know, for uh, folks who are, um, you know, it's, it's kind of like, a, I would say, sort of before hospice, hospice, you know, you are, uh, you, you have a diagnosis of, you know, your terminal with, with about six months or less, you know, to live. Um, palliative care is when you are essentially at a point in your illness where um, it's really about symptom control and, um, uh, and you know, uh, kind of managing your symptoms. Perhaps, you know, there's no uh, you, you know, you've got your diagnosis, you um, are not seeking, you know, uh, major interventions, but rather um, you're really looking for, you know, coping strategies uh, to live with your illness and to um, have, a, have a good quality of life. Um, yeah, feel free to add, but that's how I would describe it. Yeah, thanks, Carol. And, and palliative care is something that you can go in and out of, right? It's not a, it doesn't necessarily have to be a long-term situation, um, but it's a great option, to, like you said, Carolyn, to manage those symptoms, to have a, a better quality of life. Um, can you um, speak to whether, um, and Charlie, this might be a question for you. Do the guidelines impact both short and long-term use of opioids? Well, that's a very interesting question. This is one of the things that changed. Um, the original guidelines were written specifically about uh, long-term pain, and they didn't cover uh, palliative care. Uh, the scope has been greatly broadened in this revision, and it basically uh, treats, now it's sort of broadened to all aspects of pain in all aspects of treatment. Um, and this is, um, this is potentially great, but it also raises a lot more complications. Um, and so uh, I, I think it just, the problem with, in my opinion, uh, one of the great difficulties for patients who are really ill is that nobody, the, the definition of what is palliative care and, and uh, hospice care in practice is, is quite muddled. Um, uh, my daughter, died of, um, uh, my daughter died of mitochondrial disease uh, less than a year after she was initially put on palliative care, but then they told her that she wasn't sick enough to be in palliative care because she wasn't gonna die soon. And so that institution has a very different idea of what palliative care is. And so I think, um, I don't think you can, I think, unfortunately, this is sort of provider by provider. Um, so as a parent going in, I wish I had understood this better. I wouldn't have bothered with their palliative care because they didn't do anything for her anyway. Um, did I take you off track? I'm sorry. Yeah, I think, it, you know, there's, there's the struggle of 
of the long-term care, like, cause there's lots of definition for, for like sickle cell or cancer. Um, you know, these diseases where, you know, these diagnoses where, you know, there's excessive pain as the disease progress. And there hasn't been much consideration taken for diagnoses like mitochondrial disease, where you're dealing with pain over a long period of time and it, and it can be excruciating. Um, and so our entire community of rare disease diagnoses has kind of been left out in the cold. And if you don't fit in with cancer, then you don't qualify. It's as if your pain, um, it doesn't matter. Um, and so I, I am happy to see that that was taken into consideration with these new recommendations. Um, and hopefully we can continue to push that and, and maybe even one day get mitochondrial disease named right? Like cancer and some of these other larger diagnoses, because it matters. It really matters. Absolutely. So um, the next question that came in is, um, can you tell us, like, in your opinion, what would be the main points of the new draft that you think that the community should focus on? Right. We want everyone to tell their story. We want everyone to share how pain impacts their lives or their loved ones' lives and perhaps limits their ability to have good quality of life. Um, but in your opinion, what would be the main topics of the draft that the MITO community can focus on in the letters and the comment letters? Well. I'll jump in. Um, I think that the maybe that the way that you can generalize uh, all the main differences is that this is document recognizes that um, that pain itself is a major health problem, and that the goal of pain treatment should be to make life better for the patient. Mm -hmm. And so the therapy needs to be designed around the patient especially because we know that patients react wildly differently to the same drug. And so rather than, um, rather than focus on preventing uh, overdose, uh, we need to focus on making the patient well and not making them sicker. And I, I think that's, I, this is, uh, I think this is a, a return to what should be the fundamental philosophy of medicine, which is, uh, this is supposed to be about the patient. Right. patient centered therapy, right? That's what we yeah. always preach, but that's not always what's practiced. Right. And Kyra, I would just add a couple of things. Um, cause I think, uh, those are, I mean, there's a lot to be, you know, happy with in terms of the revised, um, uh, you know, comments. Um, I think there was someone who was asking in the, in the chat about, you know, what, what are some of the issues that we should, um, you know, raise? And I want to just include that there's a link in the um, slides to this, but if you go to the National Pain Advocacy Center, um, there are, there's a sort of like a, a talking points piece about, you know, some, some potential concerns that folks could raise um, or might want to raise. And so I just encourage folks to take a look at that and see, do any of these, um, do any of these points resonate with you? Um, and if so, you know, feel free to, to raise them. Um, I think, 
you know, for uh, I, I think one one piece that it, that we're all um, interested in is making sure that um, there is sufficient attention paid to undoing to undoing the harms of the previous uh, guidelines, and that is going to really rest. You know, it's gonna it's gonna require quite a bit of education uh, from the CDC, even if the, the proposed guidelines are passed. Um, to make sure that people are aware of and understand, you know, that it's okay to uh, to, to prescribe opioids in some situations, um, but there are other uh, examples in this uh, in this piece as well. Right, and I think beyond the you know beyond the draft guidelines, once things are are approved and um, and finalized, there'll be some education to be done, right? And and hopefully we can come back and have a conversation about now how to communicate these revised guidelines to your physician so that um, our, our families can get the care that they need and help their physician understand why the changes are important to consider as they're making um, treatment decisions. Kyra? Yes. Yeah, this is George. Um, as a lay person, <laughs> in all this, just somebody who's gone through the experience. Um, this is a long document. I, I forget how long it was. I went through the whole thing. Uh, you know, there's a lot of detail in there and, and it can be overwhelming um, and daunting and, and people may feel like, I don't even wanna touch this. Um, it's too complicated. Uh, but I, I wanna say that's the slide that's up there right now, I guess I'm going back to the previous question, but, um, that really summarizes what's so great about this. Uh, I mean, frankly, I was shocked when I read this to see, this is like, we could have written a lot of this. I wanna say that um, I feel like it's about 80% or 90% of what I feel is, is extremely positive. And maybe there's 10 or 20% that needs to be tinkered with, but we have to focus on what's really uh, going on here, which is like, like, like we're, we're talking about um, patient-centered care. They're talking about that. They're also talking about disparities. Oh, I think we lost you, George. Pain care, I couldn't believe just you. And it's a gender, uh, I don't know what the statistics are, but all the ones I know are female. Um, that's who's suffering from rare diseases and is not being taken care of. Um, all the major issues that we had are mentioned in here. And I would just say, yeah, think about your own experience, browse through uh, the, the primary document and see, wow, here's something that I really like. Let's try to make sure that this actually doesn't get excised out, uh, uh, that, that it remains um, in the final document. And then I would take note of the, the suggestions that, that, that Charlie uh, and others have made about uh, things that could be made stronger, but let's try to get this thing passed. Uh, and then we'll be part of a, you know, a great success story for this year. Absolutely. So I, um, the National Pain Advocacy Center has graciously allowed us to share their content. Um, and so there is a summary, right? It's, a, it's over a 200 page document and it is daunting. Um, but there, if you go to the Mito Action website at www.mitoaction.org slash advocacy slash pain, 
there is there are a couple of tabs at the bottom of the page. You can you can dive into the full document if you choose. You can dive into just a, a, a summary and that outlines all of the points that impact the rare disease community specifically. And then there are also sample letters and instructions and links um, with how you can submit your comments as well, right on the MitoAction, right through the MitoAction website. You can link live right through there. So we've tried to kind of package it all together nicely to make this as simple as possible to give you as much information as you want to digest or as little as you want to jump into. Um, but as we've talked about today, the importance of collective voice. And the more voices that we have, the more comments that we have, the greater impact that we can make as a community. And MitoAction will be submitting um, comments and we're asking each member of the community individually to join us in doing that because it really does make a difference. Um, I can share with you today, I had a conversation um, about a, a therapy for fatty acid oxidation that is being approved, that's been approved here in the United States and was declined for approval in Canada. And MitoAction, um, you know, pulled together a group of patients, we interviewed them, we shared their stories, we shared their perspectives, we submitted our own comment to the Canadian healthcare system about the importance of this therapy, and they reversed their decision. So our voice matters. It really makes a difference. Um, and it's just exciting when we can step in and we can see the results of that. Um, and we know that that will happen here in this situation. The other thing that I also want to encourage people is that, you know, we've talked a lot about the, the things that we're concerned about, but it's also good to say we're really appreciative that um, that you've made these changes and we're excited to see the changes. So we want to also acknowledge the positive things that have come out of this recommendation as well, because that that is appreciated, right? Nobody wants to to get beat up about what's everything that's wrong. They want to hear what they've done right. Um, so I would encourage you to, to give both sides of the story. Um, one other question that came in, can we talk about, um, you know, we the CDC is a regulatory body, right? And we, you know, we said the FDA typically manages drug therapy, they approve it, they manage it. But in this situation, this is a regulatory body that is issuing these recommendations. Can you share a little bit, and Carolyn, this might be a better um, question for you. Why is it important, in addition to sharing our voice with this regulatory body who's managing these recommendations, why is it also important for us to share our perspective and our stories with our legislators as well? Uh, thanks, uh, Kyra. So, you know, the there is a, a, a parallel action happening uh, or activities to the, the comment guidelines. So the CDC, you know, has finally, uh, is, is finally updating these guidelines, but at the same time, um, you know, uh, national, our, our partners at NPAC um, are, you know, uh, meeting with legislators, talking with legislators about these issues. Um, and, you know, there are, uh, you know, at this point, uh, to try to get, uh, to see if we can um, try to get a hearing or, you know, some type of uh, informational uh, uh, conversation to happen at the national level about, you know, some of the, the harms uh, that have occurred 
because of the previous uh, guidelines and some changes that, that need to happen. And it's really important because even though, you know, we see this as, as you know, kind of national guidelines, um, others, many states have taken these guidelines and have used them to pass their own um, restrictive uh, bills and, and, and legislation. And so, and, and we really want to, you know, uh, turn the tide um, by, you know, making sure that everybody, that all policymakers uh, are, you know, aware of the fact that, you know, this is, this is not uh, a, um, uh, you know, th this is not the direction that we want to, the, the old guidelines are not how we want to see things uh, unrolling, but actually, you know, we want a more uh, nuanced and balanced approach, um, like the 20s, like the 2022 proposed guidelines um, are suggesting. Um, and Kyra, can I take just one minute to um, show just uh, Adam really quickly. I think there was a comment about commenting. Okay. Um, so I noticed, I noticed that um, someone had commented about, you know, trying to, trying to put, make a comment. So I just wanted to kind of walk, walk through this with folks. This is the regulations.gov website. If you go down to the bottom here, this is the proposed 2022 CDC clinical guidelines. Click on that. Um, you can actually see up here, these are all the related comments, just FYI. So you can actually see um, what folks have uh, already um, submitted in terms of their comments. You can read you know, what people are saying. It's, it's really um, uh, fascinating. Um, but also, um, if you, you know, want to submit a comment, um, you just click on the comment button. Uh, and then you'll get to this checklist here. You can start, you can, if you want to write, type in your own comments, you can start typing in, you know, here. Um, or if you are like some of us, we, we like to, you know, write stuff out and, and uh, you know, uh, go over it with a fine tooth comb. You can also drop files here. So you can actually um, just attach your file. Um, uh, They'll ask you if you want to get an email confirmation. You can say yes. They'd like to know, you know, who you are. If you're an individual, you're commenting on an organization. Um, make sure you check this that you're not a robot. And then down there, uh, submit comment. So, you know, it's really, um, it really is. I think um, they've they've made it a lot easier for folks uh, to comment. But I just I hope this helps Adam in answering your question. Um, I realize, you know, it. Again, really want to demystify this process, and um, I hope that this is that, that this is helpful. Thanks for that, Carolyn. That's great. So we've just we've got a actually we're we're right at one o'clock, but I just wanted to um, ask one last question, and I don't think we know the answer to this, but um, typically, do we have any idea when we think the final ruling will take? So after we submit the comments um, on the 11th. Do we, do we have any idea what the process is beyond that? Oh, you're, you're muted, Charlie. Charlie. Um, that is written down uh, somewhere in this series of announcements from the CDC. And so I will look that up to be sure, but I think the answer is before the end of, 20, of this year. 
Good. So it'll be, that's a pretty quick turnaround, right? As far as regulation goes, right? Right. So, well, I think we are out of time. Thank you to Charlie, Carolyn, and George for sharing your stories with us today and taking the time to provide our community with an update on this really, really important issue. Um, at Mito Action, we continue to be inspired by Julia and Caroline's stories. And I made a promise to the three of you that I was in this with you um, and that we're gonna continue to work on their behalf to ensure that other families don't face the challenges, as I said in my opening, that these girls faced. Um, and we're gonna, we're gonna make sure that as a community, we do better. So I, I have made that commitment to the three of you and we are in this for the long haul. So as we've um, you know, discussed, it takes all of us raising our voices, ensuring that the challenges that our community faces are taken into consideration and that as a community, we are heard. Each and every voice matters. Each and every one of you matters, and we will continue to provide opportunities to give you a seat at the table on issues that are important in your lives. So be sure to visit the MitoAction website at www.mitoaction.org slash advocacy slash pain and all of the details that you need about this new uh, draft recommendation will be available to you, the links again, so that you can submit your comments and we will continue to provide updates there on the status of the recommendations. Um, and we will continue to also work with Charlie, Caroline and George to provide updates on other issues, legislative and advocacy issues that are important to our community. If you're interested in getting involved, please reach out to us. We would love to have you take an active role in advocacy for our community. So as a reminder, today's presentation will be posted on our website for anyone who would like to listen again or share with others. You can also find the full catalog of expert series presentations on the MitoAction website and on our Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify channels. We thank each and every one of you for joining us for today's monthly expert series. Have a wonderful weekend, and we look forward to staying in touch. Until next time. Thanks so much, Kyra. Thank you all. Thanks, everyone.